Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The G20 appears to have struck a global tax deal as Europe and the United States resolve a dispute over steel and aluminum tariffs. Major companies report earnings and American Airlines join Southwest in suffering major schedule delays and flight cancellations, blaming bad weather and staffing shortfalls. And speaking of staffing, COVID is now surging in Eastern Europe where hospitalizations and fatalities are on the rise. Uh, and Americans remain under-vaccinated. Thus far, the pandemic has killed more than 745,000 Americans and some 5 million worldwide, although experts say that the actual number could be more than double uh, that figure. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the Independent Equity Research Firm, Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafi of the Teal Group Consultancy right here in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, Margaret, it's great to be here. It wouldn't be Halloween otherwise. Happy Halloween, Vago. Happy spooky, scary Halloween, Vago. <laughs> yes, it would it would not be a terrifying financial discussion about the future uh, of our industry, especially today on Halloween. And I will note uh, one of your lovely hounds, uh, uh, Ron, may bark occasionally. So just for our audience, please understand there are trick-or-treaters coming to this man's door. And uh, his dog responds like every other dog does on the planet when somebody that they do not know arrives at the door. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and Rafael USA sponsored our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting in Washington, DC recently. Ron, uh, start us off as you do each week, right? Uh, some major names uh, reported. Uh, obviously, Boeing was, was one of them, the, the group kind of got pounded uh, a little bit. And there's also um, some concern out there uh, that the Fed may be in the midst of a uh, miscalculation about the labor market and inflation that could lead to a prolonged economic period of uh, stagnation. Um, obviously, there is a big debate about whether or not that's true or not. Uh, but obviously, folks saw a piece uh, that was in uh, Bloomberg. Uh, what were some of the major themes and how did the group perform, especially after earnings? Yeah, so just uh, if anybody's wondering, it's Max in the background, who's uh, my little barking choir. Um, on the market this week, it was an interesting week. We had a lot of companies report earnings, um, and, and I think there were surprises, ultimately. Um, if you had asked me uh, before earnings, like people did, I probably would have said, hey, you know what? The defense corridor is probably going to be pretty mundane. You might see some surprises in commercial. If there were supply chain issues, probably be more commercial focused than defense. Totally 100% wrong. Um, the defense sector got hit by supply chain issues, labor issues, surprises on, on revenue, programmatics, all kinds of things. Lockheed kicked off the week uh, and, and, and with a surprising announcement that, one, uh, their aeronautics business was uh, going to be down uh, next year and that their overall revenue was going to be down next year. And I don't think people expected that. Uh, and then kind of followed suit after that. Um, you know, Northrop had uh, an announcement that was, albeit better, uh, they're going to have growth in the next year, but you know, their, their aeronautics business is going to be down as well for different reasons. Um, we saw similar trends in Boeing's defense business. We saw similar trends in Raytheon's defense business. 
Um, interestingly enough, uh, L3 Harris and General Dynamics defense businesses were you know, stronger performers. But if you look at the stock performance during the week, uh, on the week, uh, Northrop was down 12%, Lockheed was down 11%, L3 was down about 6%, uh, and uh, 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 Raytheon and General Dynamics were both down about 3%, and Boeing was the, you know, the best of the week, only down about 2.5%. Um, so defense really, really kind of got hit hard. Now, the other interesting thing um, was me, this, just just yeah. just before you go forward. So, what was the rationale, right? I mean, you said different rationale. Just quickly walk us through on uh, the the downness of uh, the aeronautic business for all three of these companies, right? You said Lockheed, Northrop, and Boeing were each different in their own way. Just give us a little bit of yeah, a, sure, a yeah. texture, so you, it, texture yeah, to sure, that. Sure. Yeah. Lockheed, it really came down to F thirty five, right? Um, that you know the F thirty five program, you know, plateauing. Um, and other programs not there yet, right? So kind of a transition uh, period for them. And, you know, investors have been scratching their heads for a while on Lockheed. You know, what is their strategy? Uh, Lockheed articulated on their call with investors that they were going to buy back a bunch of shares and return capital to the shareholders, kind of back to the playbook that we saw um, uh, when sequestration happened way back when. Um, and, and I think that just caught people off guard. Um, Northrop, it seemed to be a little bit more of a timing issue um, this quarter, um, where you know they, they've got some you know programs slowing down, uh, you know J Stars, F eighteen, some some legacy things, and then other things like B twenty one just haven't you know gotten to you know higher rates of production yet. You know they're in their late EMD phase; they're not really growing a lot yet. Um, where if you look at General Dynamics, I mean they they had growth in their defense business largely because of their naval business and. And what's going on with the, the Columbia class? Uh, Boeing's defense business was just kind of weak across across the board. I don't think that surprised a lot of folks. But um, Boeing defense did generate cash. Um, we highlighted to investors the cash that they generated um, that investors liked was actually because of some taxes they didn't pay. Right, so it was basically a, a tax refund that they got. Um, so it was taxes they paid, but they got a refund. Um, so it was sort of low quality cash, if you will. But cash is cash. Um, the services providers, they, you know, uh, many of them reported this week and they did better. You know, in previous quarters, the service providers were having a rougher time in this quarter. The service provider um, shares did better and, you know, their, their outlooks, I think, were more upbeat. You know, Booz Allen uh, uh, had a nice quarter. Um, so it was, I think, an interesting week from that point. And I, I would say probably one of the biggest takeaways was, and this was a, a big surprise, was the defense industry seems to be struggling more with supply chain issues than commercial. Now, maybe that's because in commercial, you're running at maybe lower volumes. Um, maybe commercial companies said lovingly don't manage their inventory as well as defense companies, so they just have more stuff around. So if there's you know issues in supply chains where the defense companies tend to rot, you know are, are maybe more how can I say you know, they, they just work their working capital better. Um, so it's a combination of issues. But it was it was a week that was very surprising, honestly. Where kind of going in, it might have been a snooze, but it definitely wasn't. And, and what were, and, and uh, n- not to uh, push you on it, but what are some of the supply chain and, and labor issues that we're specifically seeing, right? Because if anything, the workforce of these companies tends to be very, very stable. And the supply chains tend to be something that are manageable because we're not looking at vast quantities, of, right? I mean, so- yeah, so, so the so industry what- the industry's not um, immune from you know, what's going on in terms of chip shortages. You know, we've seen right. that in, in automotive, but it's also impacted this industry. 
Um, the industry is not uh, immune from transportation delays, right? Yeah, as we all know, right. there's shortages of truckers and, and transportation. So, you know, it, ships have in, impacted this industry. Transportation has in, in, impacted this industry. Um, another one that I think is interesting, you know, paid days off. You know, work, workers took vacation. Um, so you just didn't have as many workers around to complete tasks that you normally would because they worked for 12 or 18 months without taking time off presumably. Right. Uh, and then all of a sudden they're taking time off, which is, that's all well and good and that's fine and fair, but it all kind of happened at once. Right. So I, I right. think there was a kind of a, per, you know, a, a perfect storm of various events between, you know, supply chain, this, that, and the other thing um, that, that hit the sector pretty hard. And, and investors had gone into this thinking, oh, defense is fine. You know, people, right. people, people's heads weren't there. They were thinking about other industrial space. Oh, you know, the cars here, there, not, not so much defense. And um, I, I think that's part of the reason you saw defense react the way you did. Um, and we'll, we'll get to the uh, macroeconomic trends uh, at, as well. But Sash, take us to uh, European earnings, uh, right? Your big European names uh, reported. Give, give, us, give us your sense on what, what was similar, what was dissimilar in terms of what they were, uh, they were saying. Yeah, look, compared to the, the, you know, the bloodbath in U.S. defense, I mean, whatever happened to defense is defensive, which has been a, a, a mantra for investors for a couple of decades or more. But, you know, compared to that, European earnings, and there were some, there were definitely some surprises this week, but there was one stock that ended the week clearly up, and that was Safran. Um, the reason being there that Safran, uh, which you know, listeners will remember is is half of the CFM joint venture. The other half being GE. They are therefore half of the Leap program and half of the CFM fifty six. Uh, and what a wonderful franchise that is in narrow body engines. And you know, Safran. I think people were worried going into that set of results that Safran had a very very high bar for their full year earnings, uh, and that they would bring guidance down for the full year with these results. And they didn't. They said, you know, actually. Bookings have been okay. Costs have been um, okay. You know, nothing dramatic. And, and Saffron's a very, very, uh, you know, re- restrained um, management team anyway. But, you know, they feel comfortable that they've, they've got the orders on hand to deliver fully results, so, uh, fully guidance. So, you know, Saffron's the one stock that in our coverage that ended the week up. But most of the others were within a percent or two of, of flat. Um and so, you know, in, and, in and give us a sense who the who the others were that uh, yeah. reported for. Our I mean, three, three, three other big companies in European uh, aerospace and defense, actually really um, aerospace, MTU Aero Engines, which is 20 percent of the um, Pratt & Whitney gear turbofan. So it's a fantastic play on on that particular franchise. Um, and they actually had a, they, they had a very good Friday. In fact, you know, end of the week, um, having uh, traded traded off slightly into things. And again, there, people were worried that they had a pretty aggressive set of numbers for uh, full year guidance. I wouldn't say they actually increased guidance, but they didn't cut it, and that was a huge, uh, you know, hugely reassuring. Talis, much more on, on the defence side. They're, they're actually off up uh, a euro or two on the week, but. Um, you know, with Talis, really the longer term issue that investors are looking at is this is a business which is selling its transportation division, its transportation division for about a billion, six billion, seven euros. Um, what are they going to do with that cash? Are they going to spend it on a an, an IT technology business that nobody really understands that doesn't seem to grow, which is what they did last time around with this um, digital ID business called Jamalto? 
or are they going to return the cash to shareholders or are they going to actually spend it on a defense business where these have been bid up a lot in the last couple of years? It's hard to tell at the moment, but I would say that, you know, investors are basically, they've got, um, uh, you know, Talis is being watched. It's going to be a year before they complete on the sale of transportation, but they can't afford to go and do something dumb and blow the money on something. And then most important of the lot, Airbus, um, which had, particularly by contrast with Boeing, and comparisons are invidious, but by comparison with uh, Boeing, this is a company that builds aircraft, delivers them, makes money, gets the cash in, repeat. And it's a, it, you know, it, it's come out of what they refer to as hibernation in the last uh, 15, 18 months or so. Um, yeah, they didn't have a terribly good October, not going to have a terribly good November either, but they're delivering aircraft um, Profitability levels are are okay, and they actually raised guidance um, both for cash flow and, and and for earnings. And I think that the the other thing I just highlight with Airbus, which is very interesting, uh, although I don't think this was covered at all well by the media, um, we've talked a lot, and every single aero engine company supplier, lessor, and a lot of airlines have talked a lot about this uh, totemic. 75 A320s a month, which Airbus has been aiming for sometime about mid-decade. Airbus have always said, and I think, frankly, they're being disingenuous in this, that was never a production target. It's just an aspiration. Yeah, right. The fact is, once you put that number out there, um, we're all going to focus on it, whether they like it or not. But I think what was interesting, particularly on the management call, they are de-emphasizing that. I think they'd be very, very happy. Well, in fact, I think they have every intention of getting to the previous peak, 64 A320s a month. And remember, when they do that, they will also have probably nearly 10 A220s. So they'll be producing 70 70 to 75 narrow-bodied aircraft mid-decade. They say 24, we say 25, split the difference. It'll be sometime then, probably. Um, Our view is that is very, very close to narrow-body dominance. And... Uh, you know, ignore the, the the numbers with the seven on them at the moment. They're sometime for the second half of the decade if we're all very lucky. But the fact is, if they can get up into the 60s for a free 320 and, you know, uh, double digits for the A220, they're going to be outselling Boeing at least 50%, uh, you know, 1.5 to 1, if not a bit more than that. And that is the existential threat for Boeing. Um, Richard, uh, let me um, bring you into that, and and Ron, uh, get your take as well. And and Richard, give us a flavor on what we saw from business jets as well, because uh, it's been it's been a very very strong season for the likes of Textron and for General Dynamics. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. I you know, uh, uh, Sash obviously used the term existential threat. I, I think it might be even slightly worse than that. I think it might be base case scenario. You know, I spent a lot of time just standing before people in the industry and investors and whoever else pointing to squiggly lines and, you know, gradually the <laughs> bar that, uh, you know, it's one of your Richard, Richard, it's one of your strong suits. You talking about squiggly lines, riveting. Glorified weatherman. That's all I am. But, you know, I mean, you look at it from the standpoint of here's an approaching front, uh, you know, that A320 has been gathering storm along as uh, Sash says with the 220. And yeah, this looks like uh, dominance in the narrow body segment. And given the similar trend towards the increasing irrelevance of wide bodies, at least for now, maybe that'll change in a few years. But right now, you could not get any less relevant than a wide body. This means, you know, that maybe our expectation of a 60% 
Airbus market share needs to be revisited. Maybe it's higher than that. I mean, it just keeps galloping. And, you know, as part and parcel of that, they have not been capitalizing on pricing. They've been discounting just as heavily as Boeing did. And by all accounts from the good people who monitor pricing, both sides generously took a hit for the good of the industry last year. Um, but if they ever do, if they ever do decide, hey, the 321neo, for example, is a premium product. The 220 is a premium product. We're going to work to firm up pricing and, uh, you know, basically get to more production and higher prices. From a revenue standpoint, I, you know, this is this is disastrous. And meanwhile, it's just it's just kind of bizarre. Boeing has sort of ceased to talk. Um, it's not just the usual guidance about hey, what's happening with the 787? That would be good. Or why are 737 MAX numbers so light relative to expectations of a tidal wave of MAX deliveries? And, you know, we, we've on this call speculated, Ron certainly has, and we've we've all been trying to play that guessing game and there's some good theories, but come on, why not guidance? And why not guidance about what their strategy is to combat this rising tide, this approaching front, if you're the glorified weatherman that I am, of A320s and the market dominance that uh, that it implies. So it's a, a very strange situation. Now on the business jet side, of course, it's nothing like that avalanche. It's, it's quite a lot of restraint. We're still below peak delivery numbers, but results from Textron and Gulfstream General Dynamics this week still talk about, you know, very high book to bill, uh, very you know substantial backlogs, really good numbers, and yet they're being quite restrained in terms of deliveries. And obviously they're still waiting for the, the stickiness factor to be resolved. To what extent will people stick around after experimenting with private aviation through the pandemic? And you know, sure enough, you look at the biggest upticks in business jet utilization, it's all charter, fractional, you know, part 135, part 91K, not I'm gonna buy a business jet. Although it is noteworthy that the supply of good quality five-year-old or less used business jets has completely dried up. So I think one of the happier surprises that might take place or perhaps expected if you're in the know uh, in the business jet, in, in the industry is going to be on the business jet front with rising rates sometime announced sometime in the first half of next year. Um, Sash, you wanted to make one additional point and I want to uh, go to Ron and, and get his sort of sense on all of this as well. Go ahead. Um, yeah, so here's um, something that we observed, uh, and, and actually, it's really just trying to talk across the Airbus supplier base, but also it's some of the tone that that Airbus management has been using on their various calls recently. That, and, and I think Rich is absolutely right. I mean, I think um, discounting, admittedly discounting from an utterly fictional starting point, that's just a... Um, uh, you know, nobody's going to give that up because um, they, it's too much effort to, to rebase um, uh, list pricing. Um, but what Airbus has been doing, as far as we can see, is they have started to put the screws on the suppliers and just point out that when they are delivering well over 50% more than Boeing, and let's be clear, at the moment, they're delivering twice as much as Boeing and, and then a bit more. Um, suppliers have got to do two things. Number one, suppliers have got to give them a better deal in, on price. Because, you know, if, you, if you're twice as big, you get, let's say, 10% off per unit. But the other thing, and this is, I think, which really, really interesting, is they are starting to say, and you give us priority in terms of deliveries. So if there are supply chain shortages, right. that's the other guy's problem. You, you have got to give us preferential uh, deliveries. And if that takes off, 
you know, if they really tighten the screws on that one, um, that's going to make the Boeing volume recovery, even with the, the 737 MAX, but ultimately also with 787, harder to achieve because they won't get supplies and Airbus will. We'll see whether that happens or not, but that's what Airbus is aiming for at the moment. And it's, uh, it's a really, really powerful um, argument for them to take to uh, the various suppliers. Uh, Ron, you've uh, patiently uh, listened to all of this. What's what's your take on all of it? Yeah, clearly, um, you know, I think Sasha is dead on with the supply chain stuff, you know, for sure. Because uh, as as the ramp goes up, it'll get trickier in the commercial supply chain, no, hands down. Um, and ultimately, you always want to take care of your best customer, right? So if if Airbus is your best customer for a supplier, um, they will get preferential treatment. Um, I'm sure. Uh, that too on uh, business aviation on business aviation um, it's uh, we're it, like Richard said demand is um, is kind of off the charts right I mean you, you hear uh, brokers say you know, we've never seen a market like this ever um, what you hear from the OEs across the board is hey you know what um, we, we kind of like this um, you know we've been through Sort of the valley of death and we just want to wait here for a while and kind of see if this is real and uh, maybe get some pricing um, in the end we'll see if, if that really happens right it only takes one of them to kind of spoil the party so so we'll see but that seems to be where they are and then kind of on the side of pricing is their supply chain is also constrained right so even if they wanted to jack up rates next year they couldn't like that just wasn't going to happen or isn't going to happen so Probably the earliest you'll see any material change in, in business jet production rates is 2023, just because of supply chain issues. And even then, it probably won't it won't be as um, dramatic as it could be. So you're you're really kind of pushing demand out into 23 and 24, which ultimately is probably good for the whole industry. So um, you know, I think I, th- I think that's um, a positive thing to keep an eye on. There are so many. I'm just going to put a broad question to all of you and and um, see how each of you uh, t- take this. Sash, let me let me go to you and start off with you know v- very unlikely things can cause global sort of chain reactions at the end of the day, right? On the one hand, we have a global minimum tax, uh, you know, so that's the G20, and it was a very, very productive and successful G20 meeting. Uh, obviously, a transatlantic agreement on steel and aluminum tariffs, that's very positive. Uh, you know, progress on Iran, back-channel dialogue with the Russians, even though, um, you know, the world's attention is on China, 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 Russia has troops on the Ukrainian border, and that's a reminder. Uh, but then you have Anglo-French discord, uh, overfishing, which is the sort of thing that can have real spillover and knock-on effects. And oh, by the way, if that wasn't sort of a confusing enough Sunday, you've got oil uh, price uh, issues, uh, while at the same time you have COVID uh, surging back uh, in Eastern uh, Europe, and, and we'll, we'll see how that goes, right? Walk us through the Anglo-French uh, uh, issue uh, and and whether there should be broader economic jitters that we need to be putting on our radar screen that we may, might not now have on our radar screens. I'm very worried about the state of Anglo-French relations. I'm worried about it because I'm a Francophile. I'm basically, you know, pro-European because that's, um, uh, you know, that's what I've been brought up to do. And it's always, you know, always made sense. I'm very, very pro-French because... As a uh, as a soldier, I've served alongside French uh, units, and I've had French uh, officers alongside me, and I've always thought they were the most professional 
you know, um, servicemen we could ever deal with outside outside the US, and actually with a very different culture to the US, which makes them, you know, fascinating and wonderful to work with. And what's happening at the moment? This is basically um, the whole toxic aftermath of Brexit, and what's happening. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase now, and I will therefore offend all sorts of people, but. The British government doesn't believe that most of the deals done uh, at the time of Brexit were either good or fair and therefore is trying to renegotiate them. That's a, that's a huge um, uh, paraphrasing the situation. The French government, and particularly President Macron, wants to punish the UK for Brexit and wants to make it very, very clear to any other country that might ever uh, think about this, Poland, we're looking at you now, that the cost of leaving the EU will be punitive. Um, those are two opposing views that are absolutely poisonous politically. And this has come to a head over fishing. Fishing matters because um, the UK is surrounded by a huge amount of water, most of which has got quite a lot of fish in it, relatively. And France eats a huge amount of fish, but has got a very, very small or a smaller coastline by comparison. Historically, under the EU, French boats fished in British waters, British boats fished in French waters, and Nobody worried about it. Now there are lines all the way across the North Sea, the, Ch the, um, uh, the English Channel, and indeed the Irish Sea. And boats from one side don't go to, uh, to the other side without a huge stink. And, and this has come to a head. The French are saying, we, want, you know, we agreed rights to fish in British waters. And the British are saying, well, if that's, that's fine, but you know, you, you've got to show your documentation. Um, and, you know, there are, there are merits to both sides, but it, I have to say, I think that it is being escalated, particularly um, because President Macron has got an election next year and he's got to show himself to be very, very strong uh, to fight off his various right-wing um, uh, opponents. And that has made this utterly toxic. What does this mean? It means that the British and French will not work well together. They'll not work willingly together. They'll not work instinctively together if there is a European crisis because um, Macron can't stand Johnson. Johnson, I think, finds Macron very, very difficult to, uh, to deal with and therefore probably ignores the, the details of this. Boy, that's really, really... Oh, and by the way, you know, um, uh, we, we undermine, uh, undermine the French submarine deal in Australia. That, that was unhelpful too. So... Yeah, this is something you've got to worry about because historically the UK and France have been two of the strongest defence nations in Europe. Uh, and at the moment, you know, they're more keen to send gunboats to defend each other, to defend their fishing boats against each other than they are actually to think about what the hell do we do if we have to reinforce uh, the Baltic states against Russia, if we have to put reinforcements into you know, Bulgaria or Romania or Hungary or anywhere like that. Nobody's thinking about that. We're just thinking about, um, you know, send a gunboat to Jersey or some dreadful place like that. Um, and uh, we should say that all of this is coming uh, as uh, tensions uh, or EU frustrations uh, with uh, Poland, uh, Czech Republic and Hungary mount, right? Because, uh, you know, there is this concern uh, 
that these nations are becoming steadily more autocratic, sidelining independent judiciaries, uh, and obviously any sort of COVID-related aid these countries would get. Um, you know, Brussels is is wisely withholding it uh, in 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 the wake of uh, of all of that. Um, Richard, uh, your your sense on all of this and on aluminum tariffs, and what do you think uh, that means? Right, I mean, uh, you know, it, it looks like we're going to be continuing to punish China, right? Because there's a green component uh, to this deal, right? Clean steel can come in, dirty steel can't come in. You, you know, that's one way of calling it Chinese steel. Uh, and the president has much said it, right? The Chinese have a, don't have a clean steel industry. The United States and Europe do. What, what does this uh, deal, do you think, ultimately mean? Overdue, we would argue, uh, but um, want, want your sense on it. Yeah, you know, on, on one level, I think it's certainly welcome news to, uh, you know, anyone who thought that the U.S. should present a united front with the West against China. That was, of course, the the very deep flaw of the Trump anti-China policy. It might have been time to stand up, but the idea of doing that and fighting wars against Canada for some reason and any other Western ally, that was just deeply self-destructive. I didn't understand that. So if anything, I'm a little uh, confused as to why it's uh, taken the Biden administration so long to undo that nonsense, but I'm glad they have. Uh, it certainly looks like this approach is good. Uh, you know, you want a rules-based mechanism for wealth trade and of course, uh, coming up with, you know, the, the carbon footprint aspect to it. And it seems like a fairly elegant solution. And of course, he also reached out to Macron and uh, said, we're really sorry about the way the whole AUKUS uh, submarine deal was handled. Very clumsy. We're sorry, which was diplomatically, I think, right. Unfortunately, uh, as uh, well, as Sasha said, you know, things in the West aren't all well. And uh, we don't, I mean, on, on the one level, it, it, it looks a little concerning and it might just jeopardize the Biden administration's effort to create this united front. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I mean, I lived in Europe back in the mid 80s when it always seemed like a war with Iceland was imminent over fishing rights. And God knows there were all sorts of, you know, the fallout from the, the Rainbow Warrior incident with New Zealand. And it always seems like Anglo Europe, that is to say, Britain and uh, of course its allies uh, elsewhere, are always kind of having some kind of tension with the mainland. And you know, there's nothing terribly new here. It's just that this time it might not be in an auspicious moment for these sorts of disagreements when there needs to be a revitalized NATO that's willing to assert its relevance uh, around the world and a united trade front against what's clearly a, a major problem for, well, the market-driven economies of the West. Ron, your, your sense on all of this, including uh, some of the persistent jitters uh, and, and uh, you know, that the, the street holds and also global minimum tax and how that's likely to be welcomed by Wall Street and by investors. How yeah, any so of this would be responded to by investors come come tomorrow, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if you re reduce friction, you know, transatlantic friction, that's investors will like that. I mean, they typically do. Right. Not just, you know, kind of bodes well for, for trade and, and investors tend, tend to like that. Right. Um, if it ends up, you know, materially materially impacting the market, we'll see. But you know, it's it, it's hard to see that as a negative. Um, global minimum tax, generally speaking, the market doesn't like tax. Um, so you know, if, if there's a sense that this will really you know take hold and it could increase taxes on companies, that will reflect itself ultimately in the market. Um, you know, again, we'll do it tomorrow, probably not. 
but so so we'll, so we'll see. Um, you know, I would say investors are broadly more focused on, I think, less the G20 at the moment and more on the the various theses that are out there on inflation. You know, is inflation really going to be less transitory? Is it more transitory? Do we get into a period of stagnation-like economics or, or not? And you know, I think the jury's in the air on that. I mean, you can kind of argue that on both sides. And I think the market's just trying to get its, its head around it. Um, we've seen, you know, as, as I mentioned on previous podcasts, the, the tenure treasury can kind of trickle upwards. We're kind of at this level that's a kind of 1.6%. Does it continue higher? Does it not? It's kind of around a previous high, recent previous high. Um, so, so we'll see. Uh, but I think I think there's more focus on on that macro um, and what the Fed's doing or not doing, uh, and what that means for markets than I think specifically you know, the G20 at the moment in the A and D world, right? You know, don't forget. I mean, it does seem like you know Boeing and Airbus that that the the the, the, the transatlantic WTO stuff there seems much much calmer, right? And as we discussed in the past, um, for both participants, there's a potential third participant. Um, in the Pacific, um, who is working on uh, narrow-body aircraft and might work on a wide-body aircraft and has fighter aircraft, and you know we can argue all day on how effective they are, this, that, and it, but they're coming. They're in the rearview mirror, right? So, um, you know, having the established players um, put up a more consistent front in terms of competition is probably useful for everybody. Um, should should we? Um, hang on a second. Three, two, one. Should, should we be more concerned than we're being about another COVID wave? Um, you know, when, when you talk to smart people, they're concerned that it could come again and that U.S. vaccination rates, right, I mean, are not nearly as strong as they are in the U.K. Um, I, a lot of folks can get their second shot uh, now, excuse me, their third shot, whether it's even for Johnson & Johnson or Moderna or, you know, I mean, pretty much all the big ones, uh, they're being extended to children, although there are parents who don't want their kids to be vaccinated. Um, you know, are, are, are we out of the COVID woods can, can yeah. I jump in on this? And, and, yes, and, you may. It'd be interesting to hear Sasha's point of view on this. Um, you know, just so happens, I mentioned, you know, my sister uh, is visiting me this weekend and she lives on the Isle of Man, um, spends a fair amount of time in the UK. Um, and I guess what COVID numbers are rising there, and it, there seems to be kind of what happens in the UK, we feel about 10 weeks later. Um, so, I mean, if, is, is there kind of, you know, what, what I guess my, my question would be to, to Sash to toss the potato to him. And what's going on there? Because if what's going on there holds true, then we might see it in two and a half months. So, yeah, so if I, yeah, so if I pick up on that, um, UK's got incredibly high levels of COVID at the moment, and a much, much smaller proportion of people are ending up in hospital. So why has the UK got a very, I mean, the UK's got about 40,000 new cases a day. Uh, so if you look at the charts, we are, you know, we're not far off what we were what we were at in spring when we were having a thousand people die a day. And at the moment we're having you know, 100 or fewer. And there's a couple of reasons why the UK level of COVID is so high. One is that every school ch child is tested every single day. Number two is that our vaccination rates among school children are not high enough yet. Uh, and this is the parental um uh, you know, parental caution issue. And it's a real, it's a real problem. But, it, but you know, the, if you had looked at the number of cases of COVID back in um, 
March, April, broadly 70% was in uh, ages 50 or over and um, ages, uh, you know, up to 20 was about 10%. Now, 50 to 60% is in a is in school school children's age, i.e. up to 20. And very, very small slices are in, um, uh, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, 70 pluses. And that's why the hospitalization levels are, are much lower. But the concern is that because there is this enormous reservoir of unvaccinated school, school children who, whenever they go to school, they, you know, they meet, they catch something, they take it home to their parents. The unvaccinated parents, grandparents, friends of the family or whatever, they then, they then catch it. And it's trying to break that link. It's proving really hard in the UK at the moment. So, you know, nine months ago, UK was doing really well in vaccinations, admittedly from standing start. Now, the vaccination rates have slowed and the you know covid is just running what a muck in uh, among uh, the school school kids and because schools are now all i mean they you know they're sort of back to normal ish that is then acting as a reservoir for the rest of the population and i don't think we've got a very good way of dealing with it other than eventually you know there's going to be herd immunity probably within 6 months at this rate and because not many people are ending up going to hospital it's less politically um uh, significant than it was uh, Ron and Richard, your guys take, and we're going to have to go into a little bit of a lightning round here because we're running out of time. And there are a couple of other questions I want to hit you guys with. Go ahead. Uh, you know, I mean, I think there's certainly a risk. It does seem to be in the U.S. at least highly geographically isolated. And I think the uh, arrival of children's vaccines is probably going to just going to compound that effect. The usual places that have been vaccinated, basically both coasts, a lot of the north are going to give their children vaccines as quickly as they can, whereas places that are suspicious of vaccines won't. Now, it just happens that the most uh, lucrative international travel markets and travel markets in general are in the places that are eager to embrace vaccination, with a few exceptions. That's good. Um, I don't see this as being a recipe for another major surge like the one we suffered from in July uh, with the Delta variant. But nevertheless, it bears watching. Ron? Yeah, I agree. I agree completely with Richard. I mean, you know, I wish I, uh, actually, I don't wish I did. And I was about to say, I wish I had a degree in, in, in uh, um, immunology or whatever, but, but I don't. Um, so, you know, I'm just subject to what's going on here. Hopefully, um, you know, it, if we have another uh, event uh, with COVID, um, it's, it's less serious than the previous. So it, it bears watching, but but we'll see. I mean, it's, you know, it's something to keep an eye on. And like we've said many times in the end, you know, you know, the, the virus gets a vote. 30 seconds for each of you. Uh, Ron, uh, is the right. I mean, Southwest was seen as a blip, uh, you know, blaming, uh, weather, uh, and, uh, you know, we were talking about their antiquated internal systems, but now we have American, uh, also, uh, blaming weather, but also blaming manpower. Are we going to see this sort of cycle through airlines or is this it? Oh, I mean, I wish, I wish I could tell you, but, uh, I don't, you know, airlines most certainly aren't free from the other labor issues that, you know, a multitude, a multitude of industries are going through. Right. So, right. Um, you know, it's, it's, and, you know, they're very labor dependent, you know, clearly, right? So it's, um, I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if we saw this again, uh, maybe at the same airlines, different airlines, it's hard to say, but 
until the labor environment and I guess the broader environment gets more back to normal, I would expect to see disruptions and issues you know, across industries. And I should point out that you are not the airline analyst at Bank. No, no, no. Yeah. And it's maybe crystal clear about that. I'm not the airline analyst. It's just kind of a broad statement, right? So just, right. just like it was in defense, we didn't expect defense to be kind of right. rattled like it was by supply chains, but they're not immune either. Uh, Richard, uh, 30-second answer, right? Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and President Biden uh, met. The Turkish leader uh, wants his $1.4 billion back uh, because he spent money on F-35s that he didn't get. Uh, then again, if he wasn't as uh, negative an actor, I think nobody would have made that decision, uh, nor sidling as closely as he was to Moscow in terms of uh, the future of, of that country's air defense, uh, uh, future of Turkey's air defense. He now wants let's say 30 or so, right? He wants F-16s uh, instead. Uh, how likely is it, right? $1.4 billion, so about 30 would be my back of the envelope math on that. Uh, I, I hope uh, nobody at Lockheed gets upset with me. W what, is, what does that mean? And is that sort of doable in the current political situation? And one last question for Sash. It's just sort of a weird moment because frankly, legally, I don't, understand where the Erdogan regime thinks they have a leg to stand on. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to screw up an arms transfer, but, you know, purchasing Russian air defense equipment that could paint a stealth fighter with radar signals, and thinking you could get away with that, that's just a bizarre one. So I, I don't see the legal precedent. Now, the way it's been painted is that, okay, it's, it's going to be compensation for that 1.4 billion, we'll take it in F-16s. Uh, yeah, I, I think if they want 30 F-16s, that's another billion and a half or whatever they want to spend on it. The idea of participating in a multinational aircraft development program, screwing it up royally, and then expecting compensation. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of lawyers in the international system that can make that work for you. And uh, last question uh, to you, uh, Sash. Uh, Russian uh, forces are building up on uh, the Ukrainian border uh, again, uh, right? I mean, there's a concern the Russians are doing this to sort of get everybody to not get as worked up and then eventually they maybe move into Ukraine again. Is this changing any, you know, like how, how is this registering at all? With, with folks over in Europe and, and in markets and in capitals the way it maybe should or? Very broadly it is, but um, the real area that this is affecting how Europeans think is actually paradoxically uh, United States nuclear weapons policy. Um, there's been quite a lot of coverage in the, the broader uh, media just in the last couple of days that has part of the G20 uh, and then COP26 uh, meetings and side meetings that have been going on. European um, uh, leaders have been absolutely unanimous in going to President Biden and saying, United States, please do not give up a uh, uh, a, the, the policy of being able to use nuclear weapons as a, a first resort, not a last resort, because we, Europe, need that ambiguity and we need that, you know, that ability. If the United States goes to a no first use policy for nuclear weapons, that makes Europe incredibly weak. And, that's, and you know, Putin can read those signals better and quicker than anybody else certainly in the continent of Europe and probably more than that. So the issue of US nuclear weapons is actually what is um, uh, probably the single most important thing in terms of uh, you know, Russian adventurism in, in Ukraine. 
And uh, do you think that that spurs more spending on Europe's part? I mean, what do they do, uh, right? Because the administration is in a debate now, right, as it works through the nuclear posture review. Uh, and, you know, do we need all three legs of the triad? There's been a lot of positive discussion by administration figures that we're going to keep uh, all three legs of the triad. But, but you know, do, in the event that there is a strategic shift in how we would use nuclear weapons, does that drive... And, and, or folks being specific about the kind of investment that that would require? No, not as a no, they're, no, they're not being remotely specific about it because they're praying and they are imploring President Biden because there is a lot of suspicion that uh, all of the feedback that European nations have provided through the, uh, the Pentagon, but also through the um, State Department about this has not got to President Biden. So what this comes back to is the distrust of the, um, uh, effectively, the transmission of bad news uh, back to the president, which is what we had uh, over the, um, uh, you know, the withdrawal and the collapse of, of Kabul, that, uh, you know, bad news did not travel up in the US political system uh, in the way that Europeans wanted it. Um, there hasn't been any thought in Europe over what the hell the money is going to be spent on, but I would be pretty positive that the US and, oh, sorry, the UK and France will become um, more of a focus for European nations because they're the only two nations with nuclear weapons. Um, right. And, you know, that, and that will then have a certain, I mean, I would love to believe that, that if there is a silver lining on all this, and I really can't see it, but if there is, it might actually get the, the UK and, and France back to, um, talking to each other again in a, in a sensible, mature way, if only to make sure that, that we have a common policy on how we will use our nuclear weapons. But this shouldn't be an issue of whether the US goes from a, a triad to a biad or a monad. It's very simple. Nuclear weapons are there to be used in extreme circumstances, not no first use. No first use means you won't use the damn things. Um, whereas historically, Nuclear weapons were always to be used in Europe in the event of a massive Russian conventional attack and a collapse of European forces. And that was widely known. And by the way, we won that Cold War. Everybody, thanks so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Hope you guys have a tremendous week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. As always, Margo, my pleasure. Zaga, thank you again. Happy Halloween. I'm going out dressed, uh, trick-or-treating dressed as a firm fixed-price weapons development contract. <laughs> now that is positively terrifying <laughs> thanks very much enjoy and 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 richard i i can't imagine any costume that would get a grown man more candy than that especially in the neighborhood you're going out in and now a word from our sponsor retired united states army major general jeff schlosser who is the executive vice president for strategic pursuits at bell We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.